Good morning. If you open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, we are going to be looking briefly, briefly, at verses 1 through 7 as we continue our series in Advent, The Weary World Rejoices. Uh, We come to maybe one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible as it relates to the prophecy of Jesus, one of my favorite Christmas choruses from Handel's Messiah, for unto us a child is born is taken from this passage. And yet tucked right in here in this familiar passage, I want to argue is a very subversive message. And if we're frankly going to have lasting hope that is beyond mere sentimentality, I think that we need to take seriously and hear a voice from the outside, a prophetic voice from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. For there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on him has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder. The rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to speak through me that we might understand the word of God. And that you might empower all of us to be encouraged and challenged this morning in those specific areas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a friend from college. Let's just call him Ryan. That's not his real name. But he did very well in college. He was actually the president of our student body at our university. He went on to get a PhD at a distinguished university in Scotland. And he also was elected to be the president of the student body in his PhD program. And he was making his grand entrance to walk in with the proper kilt, of course, but he made one really fatal and comedic mistake. He had inadvertently tucked in the bottom of his kilt into his waistband, and he made his grand entrance into the room. Thankfully, he had other things on as well, but it was an entrance that we will never forget He certainly received lots of public attention, but it probably wasn't the kind of attention he was looking for. An arrival that was very memorable, a arrival that had significance. When we talk about the Advent season, we're talking about the arrival of Jesus. And we might be expecting that when Jesus, this long-awaited God in the flesh, is going to come on the scenes, he's going to come in with fireworks, he's going to come in on the jumbotron, He's going to have an entrance that's suitable for a king. And yet, how does he arrive? 
in our brief time this morning, I want us to look at the three aspects or the three features of Jesus' arrival. There's probably 75 features, but let's look at three. Um, first, I want us to look at Jesus' surprising arrival. What made his arrival so surprising for the original hearers? Well, let's consider the context. I know we're just jumping into an Old Testament prophetic book that has a lot of history and culture behind it. But here's what you need to know. Life was super hard, like really hard. For those of my uh, friends who are Star Wars fans, think Dark Sidious times 100, living under his reign and rule. It was brutal. There was this king named Ahaz of Judah who was a very bad king. He made a mess of things to such a degree that this really evil nation called Assyria came in violently and oppressed Judah in the year 586 B.C. In our passage that we're looking at, Isaiah, he's drawing out the tragic consequences of that result. Life was violent. It's full of suffering, and God's people were really waiting for a long time for rescue. Okay, so what's so surprising about that arrival, Justin? If you're waiting a long time, you're probably thinking that that, that entry is going to be really obvious. Like, they waited something like 400 years. That's a long time. 1621, we're talking about, like, that's when uh, the, the pilgrims at Mayflower had their first year of harvest. A lot's happened in 14 years, friends. Excuse me, not 14 years, 400 years. 400 years. That's a long time to wait. When God shows up, he's surely going to show up in one of the Roman emperor's places. He's going to show everybody who's boss. Maybe he's going to show up in the center of the universe, Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount, and really make a splash. Nope. Neither one of those options. Look at verse 1. Zebulun and Naphtali are mentioned. Well, those are two of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were on the far northern tip of the territory. They're kind of on the outskirts, kind of in the boonies, if you will. They'd already been deported to Assyria, which was that conquering nation. And everyone had been taken off to this terrible land except for two tribes called Benjamin and Judah. And the region where those two outskirts boony tribes lived originally was now called Galilee of the Nations. These two tribes had been humbled, had been brought to nothing. And surely this is not where God is going to make his grand entry. Yes, that's exactly what God does. God is not going to dwell in Jerusalem or Rome. God is going to show up in a rural, out-of-the-way, humbled place. What is God going to do? He's going to value this place. This is the place where Jesus grows up in Nazareth. Remember John 1 where Philip tells Nathaniel that they have found that long-awaited Messiah that Isaiah is talking about? Do you remember what Nathaniel famously says about where Jesus is from? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was not well-respected. It wasn't dignified. It wasn't sophisticated. It wasn't significant. What do we learn about God's surprises in this passage? Even in ancient times, hierarchies and social standings existed. Rome? Nope. One notch lower than that. Jerusalem? Nope. One notch lower than that. Galilee of the nations? That humble backwater place that nobody ever cares about? They don't even have a Chick-fil-A or a Target. That place is disregarded. You're telling me that a famous religious figure is going to show up there? Yes, 
Surprising salvation is the typical pattern that God loves to use to keep us on our toes and to keep us on our knees. Bringing a baby to a barren woman. Choosing Leah, the woman that no one really wanted. Calling Jacob, the swindler. Gideon, from the weakest tribe. Moses, the really bad public speaker. David, the adulterous murderer. And unsophisticated Galilee. So what? Great, Justin. Thank you for the history lesson. Thank you for the Star Wars reference. Let's close in prayer. Please think this one through, my friends. Please don't tune me out. Jesus was not born to a middle class, socially connected, home-owning, Northern Virginia family with college-educated parents with two cars. Jesus was born in a livestock feeding trough, like a real, real one, not the beautiful one that we had up here at our children's program that was so cute. Weren't those kids amazing? Like a real feeding trough. Trough, Kids, it really, there was like real poop in the feeding trough in that area. Not like fictitious, like real. It was loud and stinky and smelly, and God came there. And that was really surprising. Mary and Joseph were very poor. Jesus was born to an unmarried teen peasant girl. And because she was pregnant before marriage, she would have endured significant shame and exclusion by her culture. I remember in a number of elections, I love the, the pundits and the common commentators, whoever's running, they always say, well, he didn't look very presidential this evening, now did he? Jesus did not look presidential. And that's the surprise, friends. He came humbly, God in the flesh. So God brings salvation into our lives in surprising ways. Just when you think that darkness envelops you, salvation. Just when you think that God doesn't care about you, he turns the light on. Just when you think, I can't believe I'm in a church service, I haven't been here in a million years, God brings life and salvation. You know, we tend to focus on glittery credentials in America. Impressive resumes, the right schools, the right families, the right connections. Is it possible that we miss Jesus continually because we're expecting him to have all the things that we cherish? How do we regard, friends, people who don't have the standard of the right education, the right background, the right last name, the right credentials, right parenting, the right physical appearances? I love what Anne Lamott says, kind of a little bit of a punch in the gut for us. You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. I think she's right. How might the surprisingly humble beginnings of Jesus reshape our understanding of God and salvation? How might that shape and provide energy and passion for our vision to be a blessing, not a burden to Rockbridge County? So there's a surprise. Secondly, there's a second feature. I want you to see the illuminating arrival. We talked a lot about light and darkness uh, through our uh, Gospel of John sermon series. You see the beginnings of it here in Isaiah, an Old Testament prophetic book. Darkness and deep darkness in verse 2. How in the world is the world dark? In the Bible, the word darkness refers to evil and also ignorance. Think about those times when you don't have the lights on and you're stumbling around and you slip over your, your shoes and you fall on the floor. The world is filled with evil and suffering. And the context of Jesus' birth is that of violence and injustice, abuse of power, homelessness and sorrow, real darkness, real struggle. And if we had time, we could look in more detail at chapter 8, verse 22. 
where Isaiah says that the people were looking to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness. They'll be thrust into deep darkness. What is this darkening context, this people looking toward the earth? This is every time that we use human resources to bring clarity and rescue. We can overcome it. We've got the power. We can do it. We can pull ourselves together. And we've been hearing this claim, by the way, this is not like a new claim. This has been a part of the Western civilization for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. There's just various iterations. Things are dark, but we can bring the light ourselves. And yet, I would argue that there's a particular challenge in our current Western civilization context, a particular angle of darkness that I think makes this passage really challenging And this is why it's subversive. In our cultural moment, what it means to be human is to create an internal identity based upon your emotions and your likes and dislikes. And then to post that and to express that. Um, Charles Taylor, a philosopher, as well as a sociologist named Robert Bella, put together a term called expressive individualism to describe our cultural moment. Lest us think that we are immune to that because we're sitting in pews on a Sunday morning. I got news for you. We are all swimming in this water. And we've been swimming in it since the early 1940s, and the beginnings of it go all the way back to Rousseau and the philosophers in the late 1800s. Is it no longer is identity forged from an outside voice, an outside source, an, an outside identity structure, but you can create your own internal world for yourself with a mixture of this and a mixture of that. Do you understand how subversive what, what Isaiah is saying in our cultural moment? Because the argument of Christianity, if you're thinking about Christianity, is it abolishes that kind of identity formation. It's saying the identity that you truly need is a light that comes from the outside. We can look at all of our uh, political polarization, sexuality things, you name all the things, it all goes back to personal identity formation created from a posture of expressive individualism. The gospel is the great hope that that world falls in on itself, that we ultimately need a voice from the outside, a light to shine in our darkness. If you think I'm just being some nerdy guy that likes reading philosophy books, you're kind of right. Um, But also, here's a couple classic examples from a movie that I really enjoy. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. I'm not hating on Disney movies, but that is a great cultural artifact of expressive individualism. Follow your heart. Find yourself. Be authentic. I I just want you to be happy. Be true to yourself. My point is not to commit, is, is to uh, criticize Elsa. My point is to help us see that we are all swimming in these waters. And Christianity stands opposed to that and says, your greatest no, uh, hope is not to look for the light within, but to look for the light outside of you to rescue you. I simply want to contend that yet another iteration of looking to the earth for rescue actually creates more and more darkness. And friends, Christianity is an unsentimental and very realistic way of viewing all of life. Historic Christianity has held that we must not turn a blind eye to the forces of darkness in us or around us. And to make sure that we don't buy into the lie that we can defeat the darkness by simply giving peace a chance and holding hands and trying hard. Our great hope is that Jesus came from the outside and rescued us. When Isaiah speaks of this great light dawning, he's using the symbol of a sun to talk about the way that truth illumines us. 
obviously you have these four wonderful names uh, of God. Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That sounds like a really good Advent sermon series for next year. I think maybe we'll do that. But what we clearly can see here is that the names associated with this promised child, he was not merely a teacher. The claim from even the Old Testament is that he would be the everlasting God who, is, who has come to earth as a child. No other religious tradition makes this sort of ludicrous claim that an eternal almighty God becomes a full-fledged human being just like these babies and these children that were, that were on stage just a few moments ago. As Lewis and Chesterton, all the other smart guys uh, who have gone before me have said, if Jesus really is God, you can't just admire him. You can't deconstruct his identity and say you like his teaching, but you don't subscribe to his identity. Any more than you can say you like Justin as a pastor, but you don't like Justin as a parent. We have to take Jesus on his own terms. He truly was either a lunatic, a liar, or a lord, as Lewis has famously said. And at the same time, if Jesus is truly human, you actually, and the claims are actually true, and I believe that they're true, my life is dependent on it. I believe that now I have someone that can understand the suffering and the struggles that I'm going through in a way that no one will ever know, because he actually is truly human. He was tempted in every way. He experienced suffering and rejection and alienation, and yet he never fell into sin. He never said, me first, like I do every single day, and like you do as well. Jesus of Nazareth is the light of the world, bringing new life, illuminating the truth in our blindness, showing us a joy that woos us away from the siren songs of consumption and me first. So we see the surprising and the illuminating features of Jesus' arrival. Thirdly, and very briefly, I just want to talk about his gracious arrival, lastly. Look at verses 4, 5, and 6. You have this mention of this uh, this phrase, on the day of Midian. What in the world is that? Well, Gideon was this uh, judge who was from the weakest and smallest tribe. And do you remember how he defeated Midian? He didn't have swords. He didn't have crossbows. He had clay pots and torches, and he yelled. And God saved his people. It was like a middle school marching band out there. And God somehow saved his people. It was a beautiful picture of our weakness and how it's God's grace that brings rescue. But look at verse 5. The, the images continue. We have this, this image of a, a victory that will, that will require strength, and there's warriors and blood and boots and all this kind of stuff. But the significance of what Isaiah is saying is we don't need armor or sword. Go ahead and just melt them down. They're not going to be necessary because someone else will do the fighting for you. Grace, again. How does this fighting take place? To us, a son is given. It's grace. Many of you, unfortunately, have been told a lie. That Christianity is fundamentally about being a good person. And if you live a moral life and you give money to the church and you don't cuss too much, then you'll go to heaven and you'll be accepted. That's not the gospel. Christianity teaches that everything is grace from A to Z. That Jesus came as God in the flesh to rescue us as this promised child. We don't find out more details until later on in Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, where he writes about this child and he says, For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we would look at him and no beauty that we would desire him. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Jesus was born to die. Jesus was not born to simply be just a pretty, cute little baby. The cradle ultimately led to the cross. Those soft little hands, those beautiful feet that God formed to be nailed to a cross. For all of our darkness, for my me-first mentality that is always right at the surface apart from God's grace. For every time you thrust yourself into drawing attention to yourself and making it about you, for every time we focus on self-gratification and an unwillingness to serve those that, that demand things of us, that's why Jesus came. He came to rescue us. He came to renew us. He came to change us so that we might leave this place in, a, in just a few minutes and be a tremendous encouragement and blessing to people who are hurting and dying. People around Rockbridge County think that Christianity is be a good person and go to church. We've got to help them see that the gospel is God's grace. He paid the penalty for our sin. And so Advent begins with acknowledging only God can save you. My question for you this morning is would you be willing to take one step closer towards life? Don't just reject me because I'm not fitting into your expressive individualism worldview. Wrestle with the claims of who Jesus is. If he truly is the light of the world, he not only has come to give you the life and the meaning and the significance that you're actually longing for, but he also can love you enough when you struggle and you doubt it. For my friends that are believers, keep leaning into this Advent season. Keep leaning into your weariness, your sadness, and your sorrow, and know that you're not alone, that God came and took on flesh to dwell among us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this promise in Isaiah, this classic text that points to the fact that a son would come to bring rescue, to save us from our sins, as Matthew chapter 1 says, that this son was not born just to be cute, but he was born to die, to pay the penalty for our sin, to purchase a life of purity and life and satisfaction and holiness that is now ours in Christ. I pray that we would continue to worship you and honor you with everything that we have. In Jesus' name.